Welcome again to Midtown 12 South. Uh, very glad you're here. Um, thankful that you've chosen to uh, be in the Lord's house with us this day. We, we like to say here we don't believe that right now you've come to church. Uh, in a way, that's true, but what we actually believe here is that when the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about a people. It's a, it's a body of people. And so we actually like to say thank you for bringing the church into this room and overflow room. Uh, and that we might worship the Lord together. Something mystical and magical happens uh, when God's people gather uh, for this regular, seemingly mundane thing that is actually dynamic and spiritual and can change us. And so thank you for bringing the church into this room. Uh, we are in week two of our study of the book of Revelation. It's a fascinating book. Um, so much to be said about it. So much has been written about it. Uh, there's a lot that has been written about it throughout history. There's a lot of confusion about it. Certainly a lot of um, what, what I actually read this week is called expert creep. You know, people have uh, seen one movie or read one book about it and think they're experts in it. I by no means consider myself to be an expert, um, but have really enjoyed uh, drowning in the waters of Revelation. Um, but I want you to know that this series will not clear up all of your confusion about Revelation. Uh, if you've never read the book or never heard anything about the book, it's confusing. Uh, and this series is not aimed to try to answer all of your questions. What we do hope by this series is that by the end of the series, which is in about 14 weeks from now, 13 or 14 weeks from now, uh, is that we will say what John says, the apostle who wrote the book, uh, we will say what he says at the end of the book. He has this vision, which we'll look at a little bit today. Uh, and then at the end of the vision, 22 chapters, he closes out the book by saying, come quickly, Jesus. And so the hope of the study of the book is that we would land ourselves where John lands at the end of the vision, which is asking Jesus, longing for Jesus, beckoning Jesus, hoping for Jesus to come quickly. If we are all saying that as a community at the end of this series, then Revelation has done its job, made us long more for Jesus and that he would come quickly. So last week we looked briefly at this, we're, we're spending kind of two weeks on an introduction to the book to help us guide our journey through the book. Each little section that we stop in, we're going to try to spend at least two weeks in of each theme that we might pause and behold and sit with the, the scenery. Uh, but so this is kind of the second week of intro. Last week, our first week of intro was, hey, you need to know when you start this book, it's a letter. It's a letter. It's an epistle written to real churches that were facing real problems they were being really persecuted by the emperor Domitian in his reign of terror. They were losing their lives and their jobs and their livelihoods because they would not bow down to Caesar as Lord. So in that context is what Revelation is written into. And the, the letter of Revelation meant something to those people. And that's helpful for us to remember each week as we walk through is that this book is not a, a code book to decodify. This book is not trying to give us something so that we can predict the future or know if we're living in the end times. The answer is, is that since Jesus ascended, we've been living in the end times. So Revelation is not meant to help us do better predictions. Revelation is meant to encourage and strengthen the church, which is how the first churches received it. So that was week one. It's a letter written to real people. Week two, we're going to look at another element of context for the book as we begin our journey through it. Not only is it a letter... But uniquely, amongst all New Testament letters, this letter comes in the form of a vision. So, Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read just the first two verses, Will. Uh, and here, here we go. This is the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So we're going to camp here for just a minute as another week of intro, and then we'll, we'll read a little bit more of the vision here in just a few minutes. Verse 1. First words right out of the gate. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is where the book gets its title. Uh, But that word is the Greek word apocalypsis. That's where we get the word like apocalyptic, the apocalypse. That word just means the revelation. That word just means a revealing, an unveiling. It was used in the ancient Roman world to talk about like when theater curtains would be pulled back on the stage and you would, the viewers would now see what was formerly hidden. That would be an apocalypse. That would be a revelation of the stage. It was used when a box had its top lifted off of it and you didn't know the contents of the box until it was apocalyptic, you didn't, until it was revealed to you what was behind it. So this is the revelation of Jesus. Something is being revealed that you couldn't formerly see. It's a revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus, which means it's a revelation by Jesus. He's the one who's revealing it, and it's a revelation about Jesus. It is re- Jesus is revealing to John and then through, actually through an angel messenger, to John about Jesus. Jesus is the revealer and the one that the revelation is about. Now, when we hear apocalypse and apocalyptic literature and all that, our mind gets filled with images, some good, some misplaced, but we think it's weird. We think, like, what, what is happening here in apocalyptic literature? Like, we don't read much like that, and so what is going on here? What you need to know is, is that first century people were very familiar with this kind of literature. There were apocalypses, divine oracles, writings of people from the, the pantheon of gods that had revelations to the people. The earth dwellers, the humans, would get apocalypses from a divine source often. And so people knew how, they knew what they were receiving from John. They knew what they were getting from John. It'd be the same as if a first century person in, in, the, in Asia watched a TikTok reel today. They'd be like, what is this? which is kind of what we should be saying, you know. But like, they would go, what is TikTok and what is this thing you're showing me? It doesn't make any sense to them. That's how we feel when we see an apocalypse or read an apocalypse, like what is this thing and what are we experiencing? But to them, it was normal. To them, they knew, oh, John's getting an apocalypse. John's getting a revelation. Now I know, let me get, up, get my popcorn and let me pull up and watch this thing unfold. They were familiar with it. They were not weirded out by it like we are. And I got to say, as we dive through this, and certainly throughout the series, but through this idea of it being a revelation, an apocalypse, several scholars have helped me immensely. Eugene Peterson, Daryl Johnson, G.K. Beale, Richard Balcom, these are all like otherworldly scholars who have helped me in this journey understand not just that first century people understood what an apocalypse was or a revelation was, but here's what they would have expected from an apocalypse. All apocalypses, all revelations were this. It was a heavenly perspective on an earthly reality. So the receiver, the listener, the, 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 those, the churches that receive this letter, when they hear this is an apocalypse from St. John, they, they would know, okay, I'm about to get, we're about to get a divine perspective of heavenly perspective on our earthly reality. An apocalyptic experience, an apo- a piece of apocalyptic literature presumes that things are not as they seem. 
It presumes that to the earth dweller, to the humans, I can see things and smell things. I've got my five senses, but there is a reality beyond what I can see. There is a reality beyond my five senses. There's more going on in the present historical moment than you will be able to deduce with your five senses. They were okay with that. We're a little offended by that, but they were okay with that. There's more than I can see, feel, taste, touch, or see. And so an apocalyptic writing is seeking to pull back the curtain on reality. It's showing you what is going on in the heavenlies. It's showing you what is going on from the divine perspective. There is more to your reality than you can see or tell or deduce right now. That's what this book is. So let me show you, John would say, a divine reality that is more real than your earthly reality. Now, it doesn't mean your earthly reality is not real. It just means there's more going on than you can tell right now. There's more than your finite human experience can tell is going on. And so we need a divine revelation. We need an apocalypse to show us a bigger reality than the one that we can see. And the way that apocalyptic literature always unfolds is with images. It's not didactic. It's not taking you a three-point outline. It's showing you something. It's revealing you something. This is why, partly why apocalyptic visions had power. It's partly why they worked because of all the images, of all the scenes. Because it wasn't John writing a letter of, you need to believe this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. He's going, no, 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 Actually, let, me, let me show you something. And I'm not even necessarily gonna explain it. I just want you to see it and experience it because images, by their very nature, have the power to go deeper than mere words. Ask any marketer, ask any advertising agent, ask any songwriter. Imagery has the power to hook us. Imagery can convey something that mere words fall short to convey. Images have the ability to go beyond the intellect, like deeper than your brain. They go deeper into you. They go through your emotions, and guess what they grab hold of? Your imagination. And it's waking up the imagination. That's what images do. That's why they're so powerful. Imagery, slowly but surely, if we will let images do this for us, can actually functionally and really change the way that we experience and judge our reality. They have that power. And that's why the apocalypse has not just startled people for years, but drawn people in for years. What are all these images? Because it's saying something deeper than my words can seem to say. There's more to my reality than I can see or feel or taste or smell or touch. And these images are drawing me into a deeper experience of my imagination. So Eugene Peterson makes this observation. Really helpful little book on Revelation. If you read it, you'll realize how much I've borrowed from him. But it's called Reversed Thunder. It's a very good book. He makes this observation. This blew my mind. He says, there's no new theology in the book of Revelation. Everything true in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. Revelation adds nothing of substance to what the Christian already knows to be true. There is nothing new to say, but John believes there is a new way to say it. So he goes on to say this, I do not read Revelation, we will not study Revelation to get more information but rather to revive our imaginations. That's what Revelation is for. Revelation is meant to wake the church up. 
Revelation is meant to not teach you a bunch of new things. It wants to show you a perspective on reality and it wants to draw you into that, not by sitting you down in a classroom, but by showing you something, revealing something to you. It's, went, it's meant to wake up our imaginations to the reality of what we can't see right now. Revelation is not meant to give you intellectual answers to all of your end times questions. Revelation is not meant to give you the dates of future comings. Or as Eugene Peterson said, Revelation is not meant to give you the furniture of heaven or the temperatures of hell. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not trying to make you understand, you know, when things might happen and who the Antichrist is and what's the mark of the beast. It's not doing any of that. It's meant to wake up your imagination. There are so many true things in the Bible The Bible is a book of truth. It is God's revealed word to us. But if all the Bible becomes is a place to go learn true facts about things, it produces a really dull church. Because here's what ends up happening for a bunch of people who make it about our intellect. We become what the enlightenment convinces us that we are. See, the enlightenment is a time period that made us believe we are primarily creatures of intellect and reason and logic. And we are creatures of intellect, reason, and logic, just not primarily. But the, you know, I think, therefore I am. I find my sense of being because I can think about something. That's what the Enlightenment taught, you, taught us. But really what the Bible would say is way before you're a creature of intellect and knowledge and reason and logic, you are a creature of desire and longing and imagination. That's what Revelation is trying to bump into. That's what Revelation is trying to wake you out of. That's what Revelation is trying to kick the tires on. Revelation is trying to bring you back to your senses because the default human experience is that in, and this, is, this has been true since the Garden of Eden, but it's certainly true today in the modern moment, that in our dullness, in our boredom, we end up hurrying up, we end up becoming more scattered, we end up becoming more driven to try to find something transcendent and so we get busier and we get more ambitious and we get more insecure and we don't have time to stop because I don't know what I would do if I actually stopped to slow down to feel something. And so we have to keep the treadmill moving and that actually makes us incredibly boring people. It doesn't actually wake up our imagination and get us in touch with the divine reality. It actually numbs us to it. So we, we become a people who are then unwilling to ever be surprised by anything. And certainly like our pain and our trauma can cause us like, I don't, I don't want to be surprised by anything. But not wanting to be surprised is also a great indicator that you love controlling things. I, I need to know, I need to know what's around that corner. Because what if, I don't know, I don't know. And so I'll move fast to try to make it so that my world can't fall apart and I'll scurry and I'll become more ambitious and all the while I'm powering down my imagination, which the Bible say is actually a way to experience the divine. C.S. Lewis said in the story of the great divorce, one of his novels, there's this scene, chapter five, I reread it this week. There's this scene between a shadow self, like someone who's not fully formed and then like a true spirit self. And they're having this conversation and the spirit says to this shadow self person, he says, will you come with me to the mountains? It will hurt you at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows, but will you come? And then the shadow self says, well, that is a plan. I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. No, said the spirit. I can promise you none of these things because up until this point, you have experienced truth only with 
your intellect, but I will bring you to where you can taste the truth like honey and be embraced by it as a bridegroom. Your thirst there shall be quenched. That's what Revelation's trying to do for you. It's trying to invite you into tasting the truth like honey, experiencing it. Not just knowing more true facts. There aren't any new true facts in the book of Revelation that you could have already learned from the previous 65 books. But what it is trying to do is to wake you up. And so the, the question, like in The Great Divorce, that he asked the shadow self, will you come? Will you come with me? That's what John's saying to the reader and the listener. Will you come? Will you be woken up? Will you see what I see? Will you taste the truth as honey here? Will you, as Samuel Coleridge coined, participate for a season in the willful suspension of disbelief? Will you choose to suspend your disbelief in what you've already decided is and isn't true? And will you put that down, a willful suspension of disbelief? And will you experience this book? Will you go on the journey of seeing what John sees even if you don't understand it all? Or will you demand that the apocalypse do something for you that it was never meant to do and merely give you more intellectual information? If you want Revelation to do that, you will end the book of Revelation angry and confused. But if you'll come, if you'll come to the mountains, if you'll come with John on this journey, if you'll participate with the vision and let the vision wake you up, then we will all together, just like John on Patmos, we will see Jesus and we will see reality. So what's about to unfold is an apocalyptic vision. It's a revelation. That's what we're told in verse one of chapter one. And then, and we're gonna do this several times throughout our study of the book this fall, uh, we're, we, we're gonna skip ahead because here, here's what happens. John says this is a revelation and then we get to the passage that we were in last week which was, and this is to the seven churches in Asia. And then John has this experience in the latter half of chapter one where he hears Jesus, crazy little interaction with Jesus. And then chapter two begins the letters to the seven churches. So chapter two and chapter three is Jesus's like direct words to each church. We're gonna study those in the weeks to come. But chapter four then begins. And chapter four is really the first experience of the vision. It's, it's the apocalypse. It's the curtain being pulled back. It's John's first experience of, of the, the revealing, of the unveiling. So we're gonna, we are just letting you know, we're about to read something, and it's a lot. And we are not going to be able to answer all of the questions or even like spend time with all that we're about to see. But remember what we just said, we're going to experience it, not answer all the questions. But it's a lot, okay? So this is John's, John in chapter four, starting in verse one. This is John's first encounter with the revealing. Okay, and we're gonna look at this just briefly. Chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Okay. It's a lot. There is so much imagery going on. Do you like, like every word is dripping with like, John's just trying to take it all in. We don't have time, like I said, to dive into each piece of this first vision of his. But if we're gonna see what John sees and we're gonna see what Jesus wanted us to see through John, we have to understand the imagery a little bit. Again, we're not gonna pick apart each one, but let me give you kind of a category for how we are to receive and experience the images. The imagery of the revelation of Jesus in this book is a PhD in biblical references, okay? Um, John is seeing all that he's seeing and it's coming into his mind and his imagination through a baptized imagination of scripture. John and his readers, his first century Jewish convert readers were drowned in the Old Testament. And so every scene, every picture, every image, every encounter that John has is funneled through a biblical familiarity. So I don't say this to shame anybody. I don't say this to make you feel like you're not going to get anything out of Revelation. But here's the reality. If we're going to understand the imagery and the vision and the apocalypse, we have to be steeped in the whole story. And that's partially what your pastors and elders are here to do for you and help us see that. But we read this and we hear the symbolism and the, and the pictures and the beast and the one flying like an eagle and there's eyes everywhere and there's lampstands and there's, what's going on? We get overwhelmed by it all. But that's not necessarily how John's readers felt. That's certainly not how John felt. But the symbolism of John's vision assumes a biblical familiarity. That's how you're gonna know what the images mean. That's how you're gonna know what the images are trying to say to you. There is not one verse in the entire book of Revelation that does not draw on some biblical imagery, biblical symbolism, or biblical metaphor. You ready for this fact? There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation and there are over a thousand cross-references. What's a cross-reference? Cross-reference is like a hyperlink, okay? You know, like when you read an article or an email and the one word or one sentence is underlined in blue, and if you click it, it takes you to another website, another article. They're like, hey, if you wanna understand this piece of this article, you need to read this whole other thing. You need to understand the whole backdrop to this, this one sentence or this one word. The entire book of Revelation is hyperlinks everywhere. Like every, every verse, every word is a hyperlink. And it's taking you, if you clicked on it, it would take you to another place in scripture 
almost verbatim. Not quite exactly a direct quote, but John is using like almost the exact same language, pulling in this imagery from the other 65 books, his experiences with Jesus, and every, almost every word in the entire book is a hyperlink to something else. Now again, that doesn't mean that if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the other 65 books, you can't get anything out of it. But you need to know that's the imagery that John's drawing on. That in some sections he kind of sounds like Ezekiel. And in some sections he kind of sounds like Zechariah. And in some sections he kind of sounds like Daniel. He really sounds like Daniel in a lot of places. And in some places he kind of sounds like Jesus himself, who John knew. Some lines he takes almost verbatim, but it's always in his own language. And so it's this master class in writing like a biblical research paper in the apocalyptic form. Like, it, it, the imagery is everywhere. 404 verses and over 1,000 cross-references. That's an average of, like, two and a half cross-references per verse. Like, every verse is taking you somewhere else in the biblical story. And so when we read it, we feel lost and overwhelmed. We don't really know what's going on. But that's not how John was experiencing it. He was going, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't take it all in because this is the culmination of the biblical story all happening at once. It's the melding together of thousands of years of the biblical story for the first listeners. It's kind of like, it's probably sacrilegious to say this, but it's kind of like the final battle scene in Avengers Endgame. Yes? Okay. If you haven't seen it, I won't ruin anything for you, but it is the end game, so you know what's coming, I hope. But here's, here's what happens in the final battle scene of Avengers Endgame. It's over a decade of movies, 21 movies are all culminating in this one scene. And it's all the storylines and all the images and all the pieces and all the things left unsettled and they're all coming together into this final battle scene. The multiverse is colliding into one singular moment. It's unreal. You can go online and watch like YouTube clips of people on opening night in different cities watching the final battle scenes and when like the final battle scene is on the screen, they like give standing ovations. <laughs> Total nerds. No, but like they, they, like, they, they go crazy for like, oh my gosh, this is all coming together. Th that's that's kind of like what's going on in Revelation. It's all coming together. It's all culminating. But like, can you imagine those movies? How different were those movies? And I know because I've got friends, some of you are in the room, who heard how great Avengers and, and Marvel Universe was and they're like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll watch Endgame. And then you watch it and it's like, well, no, no, like, they're like it, was, it was fine. Like, it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, you have to go back. You need to go back 21 movies and watch how it all is tying together. Who am I losing in the room for the moment? But <laughs> I love it. That's what's happening in Revelation. That's what's happening in the book. Except it's not a decade of movies that's culminating. It's millennia of the biblical story that has been since before time began. <laughs> coming into a culminating scene in, in apocalypse for us to see. It's all coming together in the vision that John has given on Patmos. This book is a symbolic vision rooted in Old Testament imagery that teaches us how to see our reality differently because it's giving us a perspective of our reality from a divine perspective. That's today's intro, okay? So just briefly, I promise it'll be as brief as I know how to be. We're just going to look at one thing that in, this, in this scene that John first sees. What does he see first? This is where today's sermon gets its title, The Perspective of Jesus, Part 2. We're asking the question, what does Jesus see? What is his perspective and his perception on reality? 
So look again at chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, John is on Patmos. He's in captivity because he hasn't bowed to Domitian, the emperor. And right there with him, while he's sitting on a pile of rocks or wherever he was sitting alone in captivity, he's just, he's just getting sunburned and starving to death. And he's just sitting there. And while he's sitting on Patmos, right next to him, a door opens in another realm and he can see it. He's not transported to Mars. He's not taken away from his reality. He's given a window and a picture into a reality that is right next to and all around his reality. He's being invited to see his world from a heavenly perspective. He's invited to believing there is perhaps more than meets the eye than what he is seeing. And what does he see? Verse two, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. John sees a throne. And he actually tells us out loud, he commands the reader, he gives the imperative form of the verb to look, to see, behold. He tells us to look with him. This will, be, this will go on to be the most repeated command in the entire book of Revelation, like 60 something times we're told to look, look, behold, look at this, behold what I'm looking at. You have to see what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a totally different reality than the one that you're seeing. Look with me, John is saying. John sees a throne. He's looking into the control and command center of the cosmos. And what does he see about the throne? It's not empty. With one seated on it. He sees a throne and someone is on it. In other words, there's someone who's ruling. There's someone who's in control. There's someone who's victorious. And maybe the most startling part about what John sees is that the king that he sees on the throne is sitting on the throne. King sat when they were at ease. John sees one peacefully sitting on the throne room of the cosmos. This world is not happening at random and the things that he is experiencing and that his friends are experiencing are not happening without a divine king overseeing them and ruling over them. This king is ruling and overruling. Now, for the churches in Asia that John's writing to, who are experiencing actual persecution, being tortured and killed for what they believed or said they would not believe about Domitian the emperor, how do you think that lands for them? These are people, by the way, who lived in an era where Domitian will go on to slaughter over 40,000 Christians. 30 years prior to that, Nero was feeding Christians to lions. Peter and Paul and Timothy, all early church fathers, had all been executed for their faith. And now John is on Patmos. When they look at the evidence of their Christian life in the world, in the context that they're in, what do you think they think about the throne room of the universe? Yeah, I'm, where is he right now? Has he gone somewhere else? Has he left us? Is he, is he like turning away? Is he fighting some other battle somewhere else? Because, hey, over here, we need you down here. And where are you? And I would say that that experience, looking at the evidence of our lives and then summarizing those things with the declaration of, what is going on and what our future is going to look like and what the throne room of the heavens must be looking like right now is something we can all relate to. 
When I look, when you look at, at your relationships, at your bank account, at your marriage, at your lack of a marriage, at your vocational decisions, at your longings for promotions, at your, at your heartache, when you look at your addictions, when you look at your loneliness, when you look at your cravings, how do you summarize what must be going on in the throne room? In other words, what's it like when you're on Patmos? What's it like when your experience is not telling you that someone is on the throne? Now, John receiving this word on Patmos does not mean that when you're on your version of Patmos and you're alone and you're afraid and you're not sure what's going on, that you should just pretend like everything's fine and act like it doesn't hurt and act like you're not confused. What John was experiencing and, and, and the, the, the summary of what he would believe and his people would believe about the throne room of heaven is that there is nobody on the throne room. Nothing is good, all is lost, and the throne is empty. And John needs to see, and the church is needed to see, and maybe we need to see that Jesus has a different perspective. So I don't know what your Patmos looks like. Maybe it's when your children of any age are rebelling and you feel like in that moment you're losing control and then your rage comes out, either internally or externally, and you feel like you're losing control and now I see how this path is going for them and I don't know if they're ever gonna come back from this path and what have I done to send them on this path and they keep rebelling and I don't know how this is all gonna work out and so what that's telling you is that no one's on the throne. That's what rebelling children are saying to you. No one's on the throne, no one's in control, no one's got this future planned out. It's always gonna be this way and there is no hope. Or maybe your Patmos looks like that you've had your romantic, desire, romantic desires dashed one more time. And the pain of it and the rocks of it and the rejection of it and that storyline is writing a narrative for you. Your pain is saying something to you. Your pain is writing a story for you and one of the places that your pain of rejection wants to go to is to tell you that the throne room of the universe is empty and no one is looking out for you and you are too much to be loved and you will never be lovable. And so you should just believe that you have to take control because no one up there is. Or maybe you've experienced great loss and sadness and the sorrow is too much to bear and the easiest place to go, the most understandable place to go is if someone were on the throne, this wouldn't have happened to me. And so what loss does to us is it's trying to fill a throne room for you or tell you how empty the throne room is. Or maybe Patmos looks like a wrestling match with sin and that wrestling match with sin, you would never wanna call it an addiction or maybe you're healthy enough to, but you know that you keep losing the wrestling match and so you're either angry that you keep failing and you're full of shame and self-hatred or secretly you kind of love your sin and you don't even know who you would be apart from your sin and so you don't know, you're not sure you're ready to lose it. Either way, both of those things would tell you that Jesus isn't on the throne and you are and you have to keep this thing under control. Or maybe it's just the world we inhabit. It sometimes seems to be full of chaos, full of wreckage, full of injustice, full of racism, full of school shootings, full of horror, full of human trafficking, full of addiction, full of abandonment, full of divorce, and full of death. All of those things are saying something to you. The throne room of the universe is empty. 
And it's into that place that John's in on Patmos. He says this, guys, 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 look, 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 look. Behold, there's a throne and someone's on it. The only throne in the universe that actually matters is filled. John and the churches he was writing to and the church of Midtown 12 South need to see a different reality than the one we normally believe in the most. And John here is saying, this is what philosophers would call a meta-narrative. John's saying, hey, there's a meta-narrative, there's a bigger story, meta, above you, narrative, storyline, than the one that you can see or write from your perspective. There are ways that this storyline works out that you can't see. There is a meta-narrative even if you can't see it with your natural senses. There's something beyond what you experience. There's something beyond what you feel. There's something beyond your will and your perceptions. And normally that's how we decide reality. Charles Taylor would call it a buffered self. Like we only are able to define reality based on what's inside of our little buffered bubble. We decide on what's real in light of our experience. And our buffered self can't imagine like a transcendent meaning or a transcendent reality beyond our miniature one. So from our perspective, a beautiful church seems impossible. Our prayers seem not to ever be heard. Our enemy seems to be winning. Relationships seem to be gone to hell. Pain seems to be unavoidable. Like all the things seem to be real to us. And John says, look, look. Something was, the curtain was just pulled back. There's a throne and Jesus is on it, even though it doesn't seem like it from your island of Patmos. And then in that throne room, every creature, which we don't have time to look at, I wish we did, every creature on the throne, in the throne room is singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Here's what every creature in the throne room is saying. See that guy on the throne? He deserves to be there. He's worthy to be on that throne. He's the one that needs to be on the throne. And the, all the cosmos of every creature from every realm is saying, that's our king. And I wish we had time to draw out the magnitude of every detail of this scene and the, and the thrones and the 24 thrones and the crowns and everything that's going on is magnificent. But again, today's sermon is merely meant to show us that apocalyptic literature will not just disrupt us, but wake us up to seeing reality, imagining reality different than the one we currently see, a bigger reality than our own. But my favorite little detail, I keep saying I'm about to close. I really am, this is really about to be it, I promise. My favorite little detail in this scene is this. Verse six, Will you can throw this back up. Verse six, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. You ever been like water skiing early, early, early in the morning with friends or family? It's like glassy water. The ancients understood the sea and biblical ancient theology would say to you that the sea for any ancient spiritual person, the sea represented the chaos of an unknown world that you can't control. Depths and darkness of pain and tsunamis and storms that you don't know when they're coming, you can't prepare for them, and you certainly can't control them. And so the sea represented chaos to the ancient person. It represented the reality that deep down you know there's some force out there that my human nature cannot stand against. There's something beyond me. The sea represented a reality that crushes you and doesn't warn you. 
So water, the sea, represented all the chaos and the disorder of the world. It represented people's experience of pain and sorrow, people's experience of loss and fear and dominions of darkness. All that's wrapped up in the sea. And then biblically speaking, there's another thread. Again, this is just a hyperlink. He says sea, and you go hyperlink. Look at all this history behind how the Bible would talk about the sea. The sea also represented biblically God's judgment. Think about Genesis 6 and the flood, the deluge. We studied it this spring. God sends his judgment on the world through floodwaters. So the sea represents chaos, the chaos of God's judgment, the power of God's judgment, the force of God's judgment. And so you're pulling on that hyperlink thread all the way up to the throne room in Revelation chapter four. And in this throne room, right now, like if we could have a window pulled back and a door open for us right here in Nashville, and we saw the throne room, guess what we would see? A glassy sea like crystal. What's that saying? Saying that right now, the king of the universe has calmed the chaos. From his perspective, there is no chaos. And if you belong to him even deeper, he's calmed the waters of chaotic judgment for you. By his own blood, Jesus was swallowed in the sea of God's judgment. And now, when it comes to you, there is not a pebble left to disrupt the sea of judgment against you. Your sin has been thrown in a different sea. And so your sin doesn't make a splash in the sea of God's judgment. He's already calmed the chaos of his judgment for you. Guys, that's one hyperlink. He sees a glassy sea. What does that mean? All the biblical story come into fruition for us to know, oh, John is beholding a reality that's different than our own. In the throne room right now, there's a throne and someone's on it. And all around him and before him and from him and surrounding him are creatures worshiping him because they believe he deserves to be on the throne. And in that throne room, there is a glassy sea like crystal where there is no chaos with him. That's reality. That's the reality that John saw and the reality that we need to see too. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you revealed yourself to John and now you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through this vision that you gave to John. And so would you help us? Would you, would you let this book wake up our imaginations? Would you let this apocalypse show us reality? Would you let us show us a divine perspective on our earthly experience. And with all the questions that I know are coming, with all the scenes that we haven't even read yet, with all the places that we might find confusion, would you not let us get lost in confusion, but like in great divorce, would you let us, would, you, would we come with you? We would taste the truth like honey, like being embraced by a bridegroom. Would we experience this vision? Would we see this vision with our eyes of faith? Jesus, you revealed yourself to John thousands of years ago. Would you reveal yourself to us now through your word? As we close in song, Jesus, would you let us know that the sea really is calm for us because the sea is calm for you. You're seated on your throne. And may we behold all that you have done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do in your name. Amen.